All right, this morning we're jumping back into Romans chapter 7. Uh, we've been working our way over the last couple of years through the book of Romans, um, and this fall we're going to be sitting in Romans 7, um, and I'm really excited about it. I've, I've, I've read a lot this summer when I was on my sabbatical. Um, I think I did about 20 books over the, over the summer. Um, a lot of audio books as I was running, um, some print material, a lot of fiction, just purely to feed my soul and uh, encourage my heart, but also uh, some research. I mean, not really research, but I've just been thinking a lot about this idea of thresholds, sp- the significance of spiritual thresholds in our lives. What is a threshold? How do you cross a threshold, right? And, and threshold, the reason that word stuck with me, Lauren, Lauren picks a word every year for her year. I don't know if some of you do that. But every year, she, she, at the end of the year, really prays about it, thinks about what, what is going to be my word for the year. And this year, it was threshold. And whatever word she picks always turns out to be somewhat prophetic for me. Um, it, it ends up being a very significant word for me. And, and her word for 2021 was, was threshold. A threshold is, is obviously a transition between two spaces, right? Growing up in California, I was very aware of thresholds because uh, as a kid, we did a lot of uh, earthquake you know, drills. And, uh, and you learn, man, you either get under the, under the desk or you get into a doorway because a threshold is one of the strongest places in a home. So I knew what a threshold was, right? You get into that space uh, in the wall between two other spaces, right? Um, but thresholds are, are important metaphorically in our lives. Thresholds aren't places you typically want to camp out. They're places you want to pass through. But not all of them are easy, right? It's a space when you pass through a threshold you're leaving something behind, and you're entering into something new. You're leaving what is familiar and often entering into what is completely unfamiliar. You're leaving often what maybe feels safe for what feels unsafe and unknown and, and potentially threatening, right? Um, that idea of threshold is metaphorical for these critical events in our lives where everything changes, right? Now, some of these thresholds are, are expected. Some of them are even anticipated, right? Like a 16th birthday, right? Most kids look forward to their 16th birthday, right? They're dying, like, I'm only 15, right? They just are, are yearning to, to, to have their 13th birthday, their 16th birthday, their 18th birthday, right? Then, of course, that changes, and you dread, right? For whatever reason, it's always the rounded numbers. You dread 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever. Um, and those become thresholds you don't want to cross, right? You cross them and pretend you didn't. Right? I'm still 29. I'm, I'm still back there. Um, so some are expected, right? Graduation, your first real job, marriage, having a kid. Those are significant thresholds, right? Like significant change. You pass through that, that transition. You pass through that threshold. And your life is different, but we often approach those with, with an eager anticipation um, because we're, we're excited about what's on the other side. And you cross over that threshold and life's different. Um, we often don't think about what we're leaving behind in those situations because we're so excited about what is to come. Uh, some thresholds are unwelcome. Some thresholds are even devastating. Loss of a job, loss of a marriage, loss of a loved one, loss of a friendship, right? So there are some thresholds that are kind of no big deal, right? Because you're the same, honestly, in many ways after as you were before. You didn't personally go through a deep transformation, your circumstances change, which will change you, but, but it wasn't the same as, a, as, as some, and some, some are really, really difficult. Um, the most difficult thresholds to cross over 
uh, in our lives, I'm convinced, are the spiritual thresholds. Uh, the thresholds where God is, is leading us into deeper and more profound freedom, deeper and more profound joy, deeper and more profound spiritual power. Um, those are often the most turbulent and painful transitions because those require not a change in our circumstances, but a change in our hearts. To cross that threshold, we have to become somebody we're not yet. And there's a reason we haven't become that person already. It's because of fear or pride or, or self-protection or, or lies that we believe or any number of things that are keeping us from growing in, in grace, right? Um, but God is going to put these threshold these thresholds into our lives where, and they're often associated with a crisis because often it's pain that forces us to cross that threshold because we're not going to do it voluntarily. We're not going to do it willingly. We don't choose to move into a crisis of strength, right? Um, but often in these situations, we have to come to see that our strength is in fact our weakness. We often have a crisis of pride where what we took pride in is actually exposed as our shame. Um, you know, it takes grace to even get to that threshold to see those things about ourselves, and it takes grace to cross those thresholds um, because in many ways it feels like we're being undone. In many ways it feels like you're dying because you are. Who you thought you were has to die for you to become who God has created you to be. What you thought was your strength has to die for you to discover your true and genuine strength in, in response to grace, in, in humility, and and. Um, these can be some of the most terrifying passages in life because God is stripping you of all the things you think you need to survive. He's stripping you of all the things you think you need to be secure or significant. He's exposing the lies of who you think you are in order to set you free into the humble dependence of being who God has created you to be in his love. Um, Romans 7. Romans 7, Paul invites us into his own personal experience of crossing over a spiritual threshold. One of the most significant and painful spiritual thresholds in his, his spiritual life. You can pick it up, it just bleeds out in this chapter. In his language, in his description, in, in his wrestling. And as we look at Paul's experience, we're going to be invited to examine our own. To ask what thresholds we're currently resisting crossing. What lessons we're currently resisting learning. What internal changes we are currently resisting embracing because of fear or because of pride or because of shame. But here's the thing, God isn't going to stop. Like, like, you know, you guys know I used to be in education, right? Teacher. And uh, back in the day, we had this thing called outcome-based education, where, where basically the goal uh, was the process. So if you failed the test, you just took it again, and you took it again, and you took it again. Welcome to the spiritual life. You don't get to flunk out of this school, and you don't get to bail on a test. There's no dropping the class. You will keep coming up against this challenge over and over and over because God is determined to set you free. God is determined to set you free into the freedom and the glory and the power 
the joy that he has in front of you, even if it feels like you have to die to get there. And you might kick against it. You might fight it. You might drag your feet. You might, you might fight crossing that transition uh, over that threshold, but you will keep coming back to it over and over and over again. And so we're going to be taking a look at this, and, and I'm asking, man, what, what, what thresholds is God currently calling us to cross so that he can change us, so that we can become not who we think we are, not who we think we should be, but who he's actually created us to be. All right, so the verses that we read this morning, we're going to come back to these verses in much, more, in much greater detail. Romans 7 is a, is a technical chapter, and we're going to dig into that, right, because he's dealing with the Mosaic law, he's dealing with um, the, the dynamic workings of grace, he is dealing with his own experience as a Jewish man raised in a Jewish environment under the Mosaic law and then having been set free from it. So we're going to, we're going to be digging into all the theology and all the technicality. This morning, what I want to do is I want to stay at kind of a 30,000-foot view. Okay, we're going to get into the street level view. We're going to get in and look at all the trees. Right now, I want us to see the forest of what's happening in this chapter, okay, uh, to kind of set, to set the stage, right? But, but listen again to these verses. I want you to hear the struggle that, that, that Paul is, is like in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Um, he was alive. He's like, I remember a time when I was alive. In other words, he was content with his life. He felt alive. He felt secure. He felt whole. He felt significant. He was pleased with himself. He was pleased with the world, and he was pleased with his place in it. Paul, give you a little bit of backstory if you don't know much about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul um, was a high performer, <laughs> That's to put it mildly. This dude was driven, right? He was driven. Before he became a follower of Jesus, he was a Pharisee, uh, which meant that he was part of the religious class of the Jewish religion. And the Pharisees were known for their extreme education and self-discipline. And he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. In other words, he overachieved among overachievers. He was, he was on the honor roll, right? He was at Yale, but he wasn't just Yale. He was the one who graduated first in his class. So he was an overachiever among overachievers. This guy was, was competitive because you aren't driven without being competitive. And the heart of competition is comparison. It's all about comparing my performance to other people's. It's all about comparing how I'm doing compared to you, right? I am driven to overcome. And, and, and uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not that guy anymore. I've, I've grown. So you're just comparing yourself to yourself. You're like, that's healthy competition, Steve. I, I don't compare myself to others. I don't, I don't try to demean them. I just try to overcome what my best. I'm always trying to set my own new PR, right? My personal record. I, I just want to, but, but you can't separate that stuff, man. When you're like Paul... You are absolutely driven to compete, which means you are constantly driven to compare because you can't compete without comparing. And he is a guy that, that, is, that is driven to, to achieve. He was zealous to be the best he could be, to be better than others. He was a competitive guy that excelled in what he did, and he felt good about it because he was excelling in good things, right? He, he set goals. He achieved them personally, religiously, professionally. And when he became a believer, 
that same pattern followed him into his Christian life. That wiring came to play in his following of Jesus, and it had to become one of the primary things God was going to deconstruct in him in order to rebuild him in the image of Christ. When he became a believer, I mean, it started right, at the bat, right off the bat, right? How did he become a believer? God showed up in a bright light as as. Saul, at that point, was riding his horse in pride, getting ready to condemn people for, for not being as good as him. That's essentially what he was on mission to do. God shows up, knocks him off his horse, blinds him in weakness, and leaves him. Like, like hey, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. Bam! Enjoy that for a while. You're blind. See if you can go find that guy, and maybe he'll explain something to you. Right? He just leaves him in his weakness. Right? And that is the beginning of a pattern as God relates to Paul, as, as God is knocking him out of his strength. God had to show him that his drive wasn't his strength. God had to show him that his achievement wasn't his glory. That in fact, his strength was his weakness. The very thing he despised in others and despised in himself was the very thing that was going to become the foundation of genuine spiritual significance and and strength. His dependence on God, not his performance for God, right? So how did God get him there? By punching him in his pride over and over and over, right? So how did he do that? Take a look back up at verse 7. Let me just show you real fast. Verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is, specifically notice, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive. Then I died. Why covetousness? What in the world? Right? Is Paul like this guy that, that kind of just secretly envied other people's cars? Like, ooh, he has a nicer car than I do. It goes faster. Or a house, like, yeah, you know, he's got that, the, the, you know, the new farmhouse styling on the outside. You know, like with the funny lights that, that just look more modern than, you know, mine's dated. Right? It looks 80s. Like, 80s is the worst. Um, is that it? Is that what he means by covetousness, that, that he's looking around? I don't think so. Covetousness, the heart of covetousness. Co- to covet means to lust, right? The commandment, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Paul knew this commandment from the time he was like, like, yay big. You know what I'm saying? Like, this wasn't something new he discovered in Scripture. It's something he had memorized from the point that he was a small child. And, and, and the word covet means to lust, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods, Right? So it means to have a greed for, a lust for. Listen, the essence of covetousness is competition. You've got something better than me. I want what you have. And it's not just about things, right? You're performing in ways I'm not performing. You're getting attention in ways I'm not getting attention. You have a platform that I don't have. You're, 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 you're sing, your people sing your praise in ways they don't sing mine. Covetousness kicks in. We might use the word envy. 
We become envious of who they are, of what they're, what they're receiving, what they've accomplished, and we become envious because it makes us feel small in comparison to them, and we hate to feel small. We absolutely hate to feel like we're not what we're pretending to be or trying our best to achieve to be, right? The, somewhere along the line, the, the Spirit of God enlivened that verse to his heart. A verse he had seen and read and was convinced he was obeying. He had, as a religious professional, committed himself to not coveting. He had locked that part of his heart down. He didn't covet other people's horses or their houses or their wives. But somewhere along the line, the Spirit of God showed him that he was, in fact, at his deepest level driven by envy driven by a need to succeed so that he could establish his glory, so that he could make his name great, and, and, and he despised anybody who threatened that. He belittled anyone who, who came and threatened that. The Spirit came and showed him this about his own heart. So the Spirit enlivened the commandment that he thought was his life, and it produced in him an experience of death. Because suddenly his pride is exposed as his weakness. His, his, the very thing he thought was actually establishing his worth is now being exposed to him as the very thing that is his shame. God knocked him flat to begin with and God continued to knock him flat. Um, now, we're going to talk more about this as we go through the chapter. I'm not going to get into the details more than just, again, that big picture of what's happening here. But I want you to see the spiritual dynamic that's at play here. God wanted Paul to grow in life, but that growth in life was going to require him to pass through an experience that felt like death. So let me remind you again, I, I want to kind of just put it in a, in a broader context. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the three G's. The three G's are the models that, that we've created um, to describe how we go through this process of, of spiritual transformation and spiritual growth. And some of you are very familiar with this. I've taught uh, the three G's numerous times. Some of you are new to the church, and this might be your first time being exposed to it. But I want to explain it to you briefly and talk about how those dynamics are at play in Romans 7. So the three G's, uh, very simply, are, are my shorthand way of trying to explain the transformative power of the gospel in our lives, right? The gospel isn't something we believe to go to heaven and then sit around and wait. The gospel is a power that we engage. It is love. And as soon as we believe it, we need to keep on believing it. We need to grow deeper in it. The gospel isn't just, you know, the, the A to the, 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 the alpha and omega of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. It is everything. We grow in the gospel. We, it, is, it is how we make all progress. It's not just how we get to heaven, but it's how we make all progress on earth, right? And it begins with grace. That was Romans 1 through 5. We've explored this, that, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we are, by our very natures, driven by disordered desires. And because we're driven by disordered desires, we, we pursue the wrong hopes. And because we pursue the wrong hopes, it produces behaviors that rob us uh, of our joy, but rob God of His glory and His creation. 
right? And because of that, we are guilty. We stand condemned because we're trying to do life apart from the God who created life. We're trying to compete with God instead of rely on God. We're trying to get the fullness of life apart from the God who created that fullness. We're trying to be little gods instead of being content created in the image of God. We're trying to compete with God and take His place. And as a result, we stand condemned, justly condemned. We stand under the weight of justice, but the beauty of the gospel is that God didn't allow the weight of justice to come down and crush us. He instead sent His Son as a substitute. He took our place in judgment to take our justice so that we could take His place in blessing. When He was crucified, He became my substitute. He took my place. He bore the weight of my sin. All of my guilt, all of my shame, for all of my sin, past, present, and future, fell on Christ, and Christ on the cross died the death I deserve to die because the wages of sin is death. See, that's mercy. Mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. On the cross, justice meant mercy. The justice I deserve was satisfied in the substitute that God provided, and I received mercy. And out of justice and mercy, the union of justice and mercy, we get the most beautiful thing in all of creation, grace. Mercy is that I don't get what I deserve. Grace is I get what I don't deserve. Not only is my sin removed, but his righteousness is given. Not only is my guilt atoned, but his act of obedience now covers me and defines me. That's grace. I stand in a position of favor. When I receive that grace by believing in Christ, I, I stand in Christ and all the love the Father has for his Son, he now has for me. Because I am covered in the very righteousness of Christ. I stand in the beloved. And because I stand in the beloved, I am beloved. That's grace. I am loved. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. And I didn't do anything to earn it, so I can't do anything to lose it. I wasn't good enough to merit it, which means I can't be bad enough to not merit it. The whole point is he's the hero, not me. He took hold of me. It's not me taking hold of him. I am secure because Christ died and rose again, not because I do any kind of religious performance to take hold of that. I simply receive it. And what that awakens within me as I receive that by faith is this profound gratitude. And gratitude is a, a compelling, transformative experience of the soul. It's so much more than simply being thankful. And, and I make that distinction because, you know, we like to talk a lot about being thankful, right? We give thanks before our meals. And, and honestly, most of the time, by the time we're done with our meal, we don't even remember what we gave thanks for. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, we know we should be thankful. We know that we should have gratitude, but often we don't actually experience gratitude. We just say things we should be thankful for. Gratitude is the transformative experience of the soul that is the, the child of humility and joy. Like, when someone loves me, like God, in such a way that he gives me something I know I don't deserve, I am humbled by the gift. Genuinely humbled by the gift. Like, 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 it's not just something that I receive in passing, like, oh, thanks, that's a nice trinket. Oh, yeah, that was kind of thoughtful, thanks. No, it's like one of those gifts that, that you pause, and it shocks you. It awakens you. 
It changes you because you're like, you're giving me that? The very thing I need, but the cost to you, you're giving me that? And what it does is the gift humbles you, so you experience humility, but you experience joy in the giver. It awakens this responding love for the love you've received, this responding joy to the grace, the outpouring of grace. You've experienced this, I mean, on small scales. When somebody you totally didn't expect it did something randomly and, and kind for you in a way that cost them something, and you're like, I never expected that from you. Right? It exposes my pride a little bit. Um, but it, like you, you, and, and, and it changes the way you feel toward them, doesn't it? Like to receive a gift like that from somebody, suddenly you're like, I didn't even like you yesterday, but holy cow, you're, you did that for me? Like I, I kind of, crap, I think I kind of like you. You know, like, like it, it's not even a voluntary response. It just happens. And when the grace of God comes in, it, it produces within us this profound experience, this soul-changing experience of gratitude. Gratitude is energy, y'all. Gratitude propels you forward. When you feel this, it propels you. The love you've received propels you to love. The generosity you've received propels you into generosity. Does that make sense? Like, like it's not simply a passive experience of the soul. It is actual energy. And so it pushes you by faith into growth. And we grow... When, when we're pushed into obedience, generosity, service, forgiveness, love, in ways that cost us something. And what happens is when we've tasted grace and we've been awakened in gratitude, what we're going to find is, is, is that it gets easier to do those things, like like. Like to actually forgive somebody who did something unforgivable. Like, you're like, I think, I think I'm actually being released from, from bitterness. I think I'm actually, like, getting a little free. I never thought I could do this. You didn't do it. This isn't your work for God. This is God's work in you, right? You find that you're, you're like, like, serving in ways, like, like, in ways you never thought you would. In hidden ways, in ways that, that really are a blessing to others, but you get zero credit. And you're actually taking joy in it because the God who, who served you is being glorified in it, right? And so what ends up happening is you're learning to submit in areas of discomfort. We really fight to stay in our comfort zone. Our comfort zone allows us to give in ways that feel generous but aren't. Our comfort zone allows us to serve in ways that feel sacrificial but aren't. Our comfort zone allows us to love in ways that feel generous but aren't. Because honestly, there's a limit, right? As soon as you push me too far, I'm done. As soon as you ask too much of me, I find the back door. As soon as, as, as the cost gets too high, well, it's okay. I've done what's reasonable. I hit eject. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we like to really fight to stay in our comfort zone. God pushes us out of our comfort zone into what we call the growth zone. And what's so cool is that part of this process is that you find that growth zone, the comfort zone expands, like you serve in ways you never thought you would before. You give in ways that feel like, like you joyfully give in ways that, that at one time you would have never considered. You, you love in ways that feel reckless in ways that you would have been too self-protective to love at one time, you know? But, but there are times when you are pushed so far out of your comfort zone 
that it feels like you're going to die before you can grow. There are times that what God asks you to do is so much more than you have the capacity to do, to give so much more than you have the capacity to give, to love so much more than you have the capacity to love. That everything in you fights to cross that transition. You, you dig in your heels. You do not want to walk through that door. You do not want to go to the other side because to go to the other side means you have to leave behind everything you thought makes you safe. You have to leave everything behind that you thought made you secure, significant. Everything you was, the resume you've spent your entire life building that, that you use to prove to yourself that you're worthy of love. You have to leave it over there to get to the other side. That's where Paul was. And you're like, dude, he was just wrestling with covetousness. You don't get it. That's where Paul was. Paul was being asked to leave behind an identity he had spent his entire life building, a resume he had spent all of his energy building, a, a reputation that he had spent all of his life, all of his energy building to make himself significant and worthy in love, to, to make himself important and worthy of respect. He had to leave it all behind, and it was death. How did he get there? Look at the end of the chapter. The very end, last two verses. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? <laughs> We're going to get there. I just want you to taste that, man. Like, like he is in this place of, he is tasting the death even as he writes this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What? What? That is one of the strangest transitions in all of Scripture. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I am in the, the grip of anguish. I'm dying. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he doing? He's pushing back to go forward. The growth required requires more of him than he has to give. So what does he do? He has to push back into his experience of grace to reawaken the energy of gratitude to keep him moving forward in submission to a God who wants to dismantle his false self so that he can be freed into the glory of who he's been created to be. It's like a trampoline. You guys ever been on a trampoline? Sometimes, you know, you just do a little bouncing, you know what I'm saying? Like, and every time you, you kind of go down, you know, it gives you, it gives you energy. It gives you propulsion, right? But there are sometimes you, man, you need to, you need to get like the double bounce, you know what I'm saying? Like you get your buddy over on the side, so he times it and, and, uh, or you go really deep, you know, you go, man, you just go really, really deep to get the energy. Paul's going really, really deep. He's really going deep back into, into grace. Man, that's Romans 8, by the way. We're going to get into that. But, but he goes really, really back into grace to reawaken this profound power of gratitude that comforts his fear, that clothes his shame, 
that quiets his pride so that he can go forward. He can cross the threshold into absolute humble dependence on God. Releasing everything that's about self-glory, self-protection, self-promotion, and being freed into the radical joy and freedom and contentment of the gospel. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, that's what you want. You're terrified of it, but it's what you want. That's why you want a bigger house. You don't want a bigger house so you have more square footage. You want a bigger house so that you feel more important or more secure or more comfortable. That's why you want a better job. That's why you want to get married. That's why you want to have friends. That's what you're pursuing is the very thing God is promising. The contentment, the joy, the security, the significance. It's on the other side of the threshold, y'all. And God isn't looking to kill you because he despises you. He's looking to kill that part of you that's hurting you because he loves you. The growth zone of the three G's can really be any form of discomfort. Anytime you're, you're having to serve or follow God in a way that makes you uncomfortable, you are in the growth zone. But there will come those times when it's not just discomfort. There are those times when it is something so deep and so profound and so painful that it feels like death. Every believer will likely pass through at least one of these seasons in their Christian life where everything seems to fall apart, where nothing makes sense. The ancients used to talk about this stage of spiritual growth as the dark night of the soul. When, when nothing seems to make sense, when God feels distant, where you are in your garden of Gethsemane and you're crying out to God, where are you? Why am I so alone? Why do I feel so isolated? What is happening? Sometimes it's called passing through the wall. Some writers refer to it that way because it's... it's Instead of feeling like a threshold, it literally feels like a wall. And when you run up against it, you, it crushes you. And it feels impenetrable. And it feels like God's calling you to go somewhere you can't go, to cross something that can't be crossed. And I'll tell you why it feels that way. Because for you to get to the other side, something fundamental in you has to change. And it's not something you know how to change. It is not something you get to change or have the ability to change for God. It is something God has to change in you as you discover the helpless place of humble dependence on Him. And that's why it feels so terrifying. Because it's completely out of your control. And you have to learn to be comfortable completely out of control but allowing God to be God and still moving forward by faith even though you can't see where your next footstep is going to take you for Paul this wasn't a single one time event it was an ongoing 
transformative experience. When he wrote Romans 7, I guarantee you he was reliving the experience. Not that he was going through it the same way he did the first time, but it was one of those things that God had to take him through again and again and again to continually and progressively set him free. And what Paul describes from going life to death, we're going to discover it is by going into death that you discover resurrection. It's the only way to get there. You have to leave what you think makes you alive in order to move into the genuine resurrection glory and freedom of Christ. So listen, y'all, this is the big picture of where we're going, what we're going to be digging into, how God uses suffering and pain to grow us and change us and free us. And what I'm hoping to do is help us see how we can work with God instead of against God. How we can move through these transitions with faith instead of with fear. Because God is taking some of you across some pretty significant thresholds right now. God's getting ready to take some of you through. Some of you have worked your way through it. Some of you are digging in your heels right now. If you're honest, you resent God. You resent what God is doing, what he is taking, what he is claiming, and what he's not giving because it feels like death. My hope is that as we dig into this, you will see these thresholds for what they are. Opportunities for growth. Opportunities for transformation. Passages into greater freedom, joy, and love. Some of these thresholds will cost you everything you have. Some of these thresholds will cost you everything you are. But God never takes what he does not restore tenfold. What he removes, he will rebuild. And what dies, even though it stays dead, the truer and better thing that you're actually yearning for, you'll experience in resurrection, not just in the future, in this life. So let me leave you with a question. Where is God pushing on you? What's the threshold that you're digging your heels in against right now? You're having a hard time trusting God. Maybe even having a hard time seeing God or hearing God. Why don't we just start there for this morning? Where does life hurt? Where is God doing something right now that is causing you discomfort? Now let's just begin by you finding the courage to ask God to meet you in that place, not to remove you from that place, not to change your circumstances, not to take the pain away. Let's begin by asking God to meet you in the pain, to meet you in the darkness, to meet you in that hard place. And by his grace, he may remove the pain. By his grace, he may move you quietly and gently across that threshold by his grace he may kill you in order to recreate you but whatever he does it is love the love of a father who loves you more than you know who is willing to do whatever it takes to set you free just ask God to meet you there
We'll start there for today. I'm going to close this in word of prayer. And um, then we're going to share communion together to once again remind ourselves of the grace that God has given us to renew our gratitude. And, uh, and then we'll close in song. Let me pray for us first. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you love us as much as you do, that, that you don't abandon us, you don't leave us. You, you so often, we're gripping on to the very things that are causing us death so tightly that you almost have to break our hands to get us to release them. But that in and of itself is grace. You never abandon us to our idols. You do not abandon us to the things that are killing us. Our pride, our self-pity, our shame, our need to prove ourselves or protect ourselves or rise up against you and against the world to somehow make ourselves feel worthy of love. Lord, you, you come with the inexorable gentleness of grace. Melt our defenses. Help us to open our hands, not to protect ourselves, but to receive the love that protects us. Spirit, show us just enough of what you're doing. Show us just enough of who you are, that we can trust you in those dark places, that we can rest. Even though we're moving through a storm, we can be in the bow of the ship resting and even asleep knowing, Lord, that you are the God over the storm. And whatever journey we take, our end is already secured. Meet us where we are so that we can grow into what we are not yet so that we can claim more of what we've already been given in Christ. And I pray this all in the worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.